All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 61 of the KISS FAQ podcast. I'm Julian Gill, one of your hosts, and joining me today is Lonnie. And thank you very much, Lonnie, for filling in for me for the past two weeks when I've been playing hooky. Sorry for the disaster. And Ken, 69th Blizzard on the board. And today joining us, and it should give you a little bit of a suggestion about what our topic's going to be, is author of Shout It Out Loud, James Campion. Welcome back, James. We had you on the show a while ago when your book, I think, first came out. Uh, but we want you back to, to be a part of this panel while we talk about the 40th anniversary thank of you. the... Uh, of the of the album now you've had a little bit of a life-changing event and uh it's under your head i believe or under your hat so what's what's going on what's going on here because uh you know you're looking a little bit different from the last time we saw you yeah well i just real quick i don't want to bring anybody down but my sister-in-law has uh uh, stage two breast cancer and uh for uh to in solidarity i started to shave my head Mm -hmm. and then my great assistant danielle said why don't we take photographs of that and instagram and everything for your fans or whatever you might call them and i said great and i said we got to make something some hay of this we can't just do it for fun so i started looking into charities and then i found out wow how much money above and beyond medical care Families that go through this have to pay now that it's hit our family directly. And, you know, a lot of health insurance is only covered about 80 percent. And when you start talking about the 50s and 60s and 70s, $100,000 of care. So I decided to set up a GoFundMe site to, to kind of support her. So uh, I'm not going to give the, the direct link uh, away now. I'm not going to remember it. But if you go to jamescampion.com, it's the first thing on there. And if you want to give five, ten dollars, anything, it certainly helps. So, Julian, thank you for asking. I really appreciate it. No, that's Thanks. really cool. I, unfortunately, I think a lot of us are going to be touched or have been touched by someone with cancer. And you know, anything we can do to play it forward to someone else who's undergoing the battle is an awesome thing. But uh, I'll put in the uh, the link to your site and to the uh, the fundraiser. You know, when we uh, Thanks, when man. I put this together, because uh, you know, and here, you know, prayers and positive vibes. You know, you know, everyone out there, you can't give a buck. You know, send some positive energy. Thank you. Thank you very much, all you guys. Thanks. So let's jump into our topic, and it is, of course, the 40th anniversary. And, and James, I'm going to just hit you straight up. 40 years of Destroyer. I mean, what 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 are you, is your immediate take on that, other than holy shit? I'm old. Really, really <laughs> old. It's not just the beard that's great. I, I will say this, though. I don't know how you guys feel. Uh, I am sure the elder statesman here. But I. Uh, it's very hard to believe that it has been 40 years And I picked it up somewhere in June of that year that I ended up getting Destroyer after getting Kiss Alive for my eighth grade graduation. And of course, Destroyer had already been out. I had to have it. And just that cover, everything I read about in the book, just holding that cover and the vinyl and that big K-I-S-S in the orange and yellow and then the lyrics to Detroit Rock City and putting that needle on and listening to that wonderful opening. I just can't believe that that much time has gone past. And it's interesting, though, as much as I say that retrospectively, you could really see the time pass. For a while there, and I think maybe you guys haven't had this, but I had it. Big Kiss fan as a kid. Then it kind of faded, got into other bands, got into other things, uh, became a writer, wrote about other things, and, and, and became a music journalist. And then, uh, and every once in a while, Kiss would come back in the transom, and I have to remember, and I'd always defend them in some way. Uh, and then five years ago, it's coming up now, late 2011, I think, I pitched the original idea of doing a book about it. And once I dove into it, all those memories rushed back. So it was almost like it was yesterday. Living with that book, 
for the last three or four years, three years of researching and writing it, and then a year for Backbeat to kind of get it, and us to get source material and the rights to the lyrics and the rights for the photographs, that it was, um, it was quite an odyssey, no pun intended, Julian, and I was trying to get in to that mode, and I did it immediately. I, I, it, the memories are so fresh, and I don't know what you guys think, but it's the album that really changed a lot of people's lives. It's quoted a lot in my book. I've done interviews with Eddie Trunk and Scott Ian from Anthrax, and a lot of people said, if I didn't pick that record up, maybe I wouldn't have a business. I wouldn't be in a rock band. I wouldn't do radio shows. And uh, you too, Julian, I think when we first talked about it, you said how much it affected you. So uh, that's my immediate memory and reaction to Destroyer and what it meant to me. Ken, how about you? Well, for me, I, my, my uh, first real knowing of Destroyer was after I got, I think, double platinum first. Um, it was after Alive 2, and then I got double platinum to kind of get you know, in tune with what, you know, Kiss has released, uh, prior to, prior to, you know, Live 2. And I know off Live 2, I loved songs like Detroit Rock City and Shout It Out Loud. You know, those are, God of Thunder, those are all, you know, fantastic. I loved listening to them uh, on Live 2. So I was slowly going back and I'm like, well, this one has a lot of the songs that off Live 2 yeah, I think I should probably get that, you know. So I know it was one of the early ones I got. Uh, probably, I'm going to say I probably got it in 78, though. Um, and, and you know, it just, the cover, like you guys say, the, the cover is just awesome. It's superhero thing. I, I was, I mean, I was into, and still am, into Batman. And I was into comic books, and exactly. And so that was just like, okay, this is just right up, you know, my alley. And uh, the superhero thing, and then putting it on, um, it was interesting because I was so used to the live two version, for instance, of Detroit Rock City, and then I had this opening part. You know, it sounds like uh, you have the radio announcer, and and uh, you know what what's the stuff going on here? It's, but it was interesting, and and uh, I thought it just it just all flowed, you know, nicely. Plus, I, I listened to it today. Uh, and and it just you know flows you know beautifully from one song to the to, to the next and uh you know it's just a good solid album um so you know it's it ranks high with you know with me um you know top i don't know you know it's the best concept Six. album a kiss ever made isn't it Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want to call it a concept, I mean. Right, yeah. right. I tried to to thread that, and I've and since I've interviewed, since I did the book, and I've people have been asking me questions. I was, I was on with a bunch of guys on a metal radio show on Saturday night, and uh, they were saying, "When I was a kid, I figured that too. The guy's driving in the car, and he crashes, and then he's he and he goes to hell, and there's Gene Simmons, and then he's raised up to heaven with the choir." And I thought, "Wow, I didn't even go there." So. Other people have kind of connected the dots that way, too. It's not really technically a concept album, uh, but, yeah, I, I can but see it, that. But there are, there's a theme that kind of undulates theme. through the, yeah. the thematic right. album, I guess. Right. Lonnie, now, like me, I, I mean, we're, we didn't get into the band, you know, until <laughs> a little bit later than these chaps. So, um, obviously, you know, your, your story is going to be a little bit different than mine being 80s. Yeah, well, my story, too, though, is Destroyer was actually – it's very special to me because Destroyer is actually my introduction, was my introduction to the band. Um, my It was the first album that my brother had, and that's what turned me on to Kiss, was hearing Destroyer. 
So we didn't, but we didn't have the album we had because remember it says the '80s. So of course we had the audio cassette of of Destroyer. So the and of and of course the so that that great image of the band just doesn't resonate as well on that small on that small cassette. And remember on the cassettes too, it was only like half the cassette because the bottom half of the cover was like credits and things like that. You know what I mean? So it was right. very 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 small image of the band that 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 I was that I was seeing, but. Um, the album, we wore that tape out together between the two of us. We just wore it out to the, to the point where I still have it. He gave it to me because I'm, I turned into the bigger Kiss fan as time went on. Um, I still have it, but it, it won't play, but I have it just because of, because it's, it was my introduction to the band. And I remember hearing, hearing that being very young hearing that maybe maybe five years old maybe six i don't know really young hearing that and it resonated with me very quick very quickly and and stuck with me for a long time we had that and then the second album he got was creatures of the night and those two albums are my introduction to the band but but destroyer was was the original one we had and it hit home for me right away and james you were talking earlier about how it when you became a Kiss fan, you were, you know, you might have been really strong on it at first, and then you know you, you get into other bands and that. And for me, that's what happened. You know, I got into to, to other bands like Guns N' Roses and things like that. But then everybody who watches the shows know that come '92, I was just head over heels in love with Kiss again with another Bob Ezrin record. So, um, although I didn't get Destroyer in '76 like like James did, or I didn't you know, get it shortly thereafter, like, like Ken did, you know, Destroyer was, was very special to me very early on and, and still is to this day. Yeah. A lot of people look at it as the gateway, but I was going to ask all you guys, um, does everybody here comic book fans? Were they all, when you were kids? I mean, that seems to be the American boy story. Yeah. Uh, I was a big Spider-Man guy. <laughs> I loved horror comics, like Creepy and Eerie, which is perfect because Ken Kelly, you know, did covers for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved, like I said, Spider-Man. I was into the Black on the Planet of the Apes comics in the 70s. So this that was a nice transition. I, I was wondering if that was the same kind of transition. Horror movies, sci-fi, and all that kind of stuff that Kiss kind of fed, tickled that little thing in us that made us, you know, uh, more attached to it. It wasn't just the music. Everybody was just, oh, they ignore the music. But as I write in the book, the image is a huge part. And people have to stop ignoring that. That was a big part. And, you know, we just lost Bowie. Uh, and I'm so glad now. I've done a couple of bookstore uh, uh, presentations. And I always start with Bowie because he created these characters. And then he was able to strip the characters away and go to another character. Almost saying, oh, that was so 1972. Kiss wore it on their faces and kept it going. So you felt like you were a part of this movement. I mean, that's why the Kiss Army thing resonates so well. So I think the image part should not ever, going from the comic book thing, should never be forgotten and, and, and uh, limited. I think there's a way you can intellectually defend the band, and, and I think that's a huge part of them. And I, I, I love that part, and I don't know what you guys feel about that. But. Yeah, comic books, i got to say, I was never into comic books, other than, I don't know, uh, I've only ever owned one comic book, and that was... What? That is yeah. crazy. It, yeah, it, cool. in, in addition to the Kiss ones, but uh, Fat Freddy's, uh, yes, Fat yes, Freddy's yes, Cat for anyone who's out there into obscure comics. Um, so I, ne- I never got it from that level. But I get the superhero side, and, and that's the thing that resonated with me when I first saw that cover. And, I mean, Lonnie's kind of touched on that, that, you know, wow, it's superheroes. It's larger than life. It's, you know... It's it's greater than the the sum, I guess. 
you know, I, I don't even remember, you know, when I first really experienced Destroyer, but one thing that still sticks with me to this to this day is the sound. It's not just a collection of songs. It's a complete thing. You know, it's the sonics all the way through. It's so unified. It sounds just so balanced, whether you're listening to Great Expectations or Detroit Rock City. You know, the, the, the clarity of the sonics is just unbelievable for me. But let's get into an, another question on this. What to you makes this Kiss's greatest studio album because obviously it is the only album that is officially double platinum certified in the band's studio catalog Smashes Thrashes is also I believe double platinum and Alive 2 and that is it for the official multi-platinum certifications for the band even though we know that everything else in the 70s is at least double platinum so James, back to you. What makes it the greatest album in the band's catalog? I mean, it's a big 4-0 here for the album. Um, it's it's the one that you really got to celebrate. What makes it what makes it great for you? Well, I think uh, sonically, as you mentioned, it it just blows the earlier ones away. And it really, for a lot of fans at that time, including me, it sort of signified our belief that we got with Alive that this was a big giant monolith that was coming and you couldn't stop it. Uh, but also the imagination of the lyrics and the sounds of the songs. I, I argue in my book that before uh, Destroyer, there really wasn't any of this connection of the image. They wrote songs, you know, some of the songs, but for the most part, the songs about girls or drinking or... And this was... A, they, they have Greek mythology in here. They've got uh, references to S&M and references to, uh, to, to dying in a car. There's all these different things that I love, the youth of it. But I think also um, getting it down to the bare knuckles about why it's double platinum. Let's, let's face it, the songs, because this is getting away from the image. I mean, they still play all these songs today. Detroit Rock City, uh, King of the Nighttime World, God of Thunder is Gene's song. Beth is still their highest ranking single. It's still one of the, it's in a Volkswagen commercial now, which probably is driving the sales up. I know it helped my book for certain. Um, Shout it out loud. They used it to, to kick off their 96 tour. Uh, uh, you know, Do You Love Me? They played it on all those, you know, the acoustic tours. So to me, uh, out of any other record except for the first record, it seems to have, you know, transcended their career. And again, the final thing I would say is that, and again, not to tout the book, but it's, I spent so much time on it and I had a thesis and I drove it home, I think, is that that was the seminal moment for them. I use that word a lot because they were teetering on, are they going to be some 70s rock oddity that people just say, hey, remember that band Kiss that painted their face? Or something that became this giant, and it wasn't just Destroyer, it was getting, uh, you know, Howard Marks involved and uh, the Bootwill, whatever how you pronounce it, the company that got all the merchandising. And they took off from this, this thing to a whole other thing entirely. And I think that that's why people have such a fond memory, or they think of it as like this seminal moment in history. So I think all those things put together, I don't know if I covered too much or hit some of the bells, but that's my feeling. You know, you're just missing you know, the, the kitchen sink, I think. Ken, <laughs> what, for you, what for you makes it a great album? You know, whether it's the greatest in, uh, album in the Kiss catalogs open to debate um, right, to right. a certain extent. But, but uh, yeah, it, I mean, Paul and Gene always, you know, talk about it as the one that's going to be, you know, that they try to uh, emulate, you know, on future releases or try to copy or sound like. Um, but it's the whole package. I mean, I mean, the the studio album before was was dressed to kill. They, I mean, they were in suits and things like that. You know, that's not I, that's not superheroish. Though, if they would have done that right as originally they intended, you know, coming out of a of a phone booth and becoming superheroes. Yeah. Uh, in that one photo shoot, that would have made more sense on the album. Uh, probably would have, you know, even brought more sounds. But alive, that that was getting closer. I mean, a great image of them live on stage. So, 
and here it is. I mean, this is, you know, for me, comic book, um, comic book meets rock world. And you have also the, the first showing of the, the Kiss Army logo. Um, that's all part of it. The whole package, the front, back cover, uh, the colors, um, the inside packaging, um, and then then the the whole album itself, uh, the way it flowed. And uh, I, I mean, I like what you know, James. I was reading, you know, when I read James' book about the part where they were sh- kind of you know short on time on like side one or side two, right? <laughs> it has to be a certain like thirty five minutes or something total, or, right. or somewhere around there, right? So. Uh, it was interesting that then they kind of say, "Oh, we got to do something here," and they added that the you know the beginning and the ending part. And but yes, it's the whole sound, the whole package. To me, makes it the you know ultimate Kiss album, you know, package wise and and song wise. And like you said, James, about they use all these songs. Most almost all of the songs on this album are being used, you know, today. In concert or whatever. Yeah, I think it's the only Kiss album that all of the songs have been played live. I could be wrong about that. Julian, help me out, or one of you guys. Uh, You're wrong. Okay. Was it the first album? First album. First album. First album. Second album. Wait, they played Love Theme from Kiss live? Acrobat. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Very good. Before, yeah, before they recorded it. Yeah, 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 that's a and, good point. And they, they played it on the first tour. So, you know, we got Lafayette uh, Music Room, I think, has a live recording of it, as does uh, The Bayou. So, right. there's but any other? Two. Is there any other album that has they played all the songs? I know they played yeah, Sweet Painful like three hotter, times. Yeah, Hotter Than Hell, okay. they played all of, and Dress to Kill. So, really? Yeah, they between the, yeah, they played all of them. Yep. Love, okay, all right. Well, Love Her All I Can, they play. Well, I guess they must have played it Cruise. later on. And the, on very, the Cruise. Very first Kiss show. But. But if you talk about how many the times they how many times they've played certain songs in concert, I'd say that, that you get the the majority is going to be off of you know, Destroyer. Yeah, you know, Destroyer was the first one I think to get to a hundred percent legitimately. Oh, actually, no, it wouldn't have been. So you know, I'd scratch that, but because of Great Expectations, obviously, wasn't done until oh, Symphony, Symphony. You know, that, you right? That's when I thought all of them were. Yeah, that, yeah. So up, yeah. so the first album was done before then, but you know, there, there's. Out of a band that's got how many studio albums, it's impressive that you know any of the albums get to 100%, especially nowadays. So yeah, it's, it's sure. always nice when they go back and fill in. Um, I, I completely lost my train of thought with that segue. That t- part of me, that tangent. I think uh, Lonnie had to go on the uh, on the whole uh, transition from the comic book thing. I well, think. When, and what Kim was talking about, how you know what, what makes it so special to him um, – is that I remember, Ken, you brought up the fact that, it, that it's so short and it's like 35 minutes long. And I remember I was listening to an interview on Howard Stern one day and Rob Zombie was his guest. And Rob was talking about his new album coming out, Educated Horses. And he was discussing about how it's a short album that, you know, it's not, it wasn't, you know, long time frame wise. He said, but he was, he's talking to Howard about how it doesn't have to be real long to be, epic because if you can cram it into a certain time frame you know long doesn't necessarily mean great i mean look at hot in the shade a long album doesn't necessarily make make it a, a great album but if you if you value quality over the quantity you know and you and you make these nine songs that are on there what those nine songs are 
you know, it's fantastic. And he goes to Howard, he goes, listen to Kiss's Destroyer. That thing's only 35 minutes, but it's epic. And Howard's not a big Kiss fan at all. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. Well, they, they, there's, this, there's this cliche in the rock and roll world at all killer, no filler. And I think that, oh, per, that perfectly mm. applies to this song, with perhaps the exception of Sweet Pain. I'm one of the few people who really like Sweet Pain. Why am I the only person that I like? I, you, I like Sweet Pain, I mean, I, I like the sound. I like it's the, probably I like the weakest the song on the record. But it, it feels yeah. the most unfinished. It, it feels like the one that they just never got around to um, Bob Ezrin getting a co-write on making it perfect. You know, yeah, I like, I've talked about how, like, um, like, Daniel and I always say the guy gave rock and roll to you doesn't really fit well on revenge. You could say that about, about sweet pain that it, it doesn't resonate the way the other songs do. And it doesn't maybe fit in with the other eight songs on the album. And it's a shame too, because I think I love the opening riff to that. It's such a great opening riff of that keyboard that he put in there. It's just so epic in that sense. It's almost like too bad that it's sandwiched in with all these other great songs. And it kind of, you know, I think it's uh, it's overshadowed a little bit. But maybe if it was on, I don't know, rock and roll over. Because I was going to throw this point in. What, when I, because Lonnie mentioned, oh, you know, I, I became a Kiss fan, and then it kind of went off to another level. For me, I, it kind of almost immediately dove off the, the charts for me because I was really disappointed with rock and roll over. I get a lot of guff for that. A lot of people like it much better than Destroyer. I know people feel it's too fluffy. Destroyer's got the ballad, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't really Kiss. They finally got back to real Kiss. Uh, it's rock and roll over is like a favorite of a lot of uh, fans. But at that time, as a kid, I wanted another big epic with sound effects and God of Thunder, and I got, you know, it was a, a nice album, but I, I just thought it pale comparison, so I kind of faded. Then I was, I was getting into my later teen years, where I was discovering other bands, and Kiss kind of became like my middle school band, and then I was able to grab it later on. I came back around with, strangely enough, music from The Elder, but uh, it just seems that um, it, it went quickly for me because Rock and Roll Over was such a departure from Destroyer, because that's my departure. It must have been a big departure for those guys who, who grew up listening to the first three albums. My beginning was Destroyer, so when Rock and Roll Over came out, I, I got disappointed. You're, you're the only one, I think, that, that had a departure <laughs> after Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over turned them off. I, I am. Yeah, really. I am. <laughs> uh, it's amazing, because I write about how it, it catapulted I've never them. heard someone say that before. Yeah, it was For me, I was really disappointed. And, cause, because, and I know why they did it now. They ran and tried to put it out quickly to get, because they were afraid. They didn't realize Beth was going to take off, because they ended up playing all the Destroyer songs on the Paul Lynn special. And by that point, Rock and Roll Over had already been out. They'd been touring it. So, But to me, they rushed it out. I, I remember it went from my summer of my graduation year, from eighth grade into high school. And you know that transition, right? So you get into high school and people are beating you up because you like Kiss. <laughs> yeah, and, and so then here comes Kiss. I'm like, oh, great, a new Kiss album. I'm like, oh, I don't think I should be beat up, beaten up for this. I think it was tougher for me to defend my Kissdom at that point. So yeah, maybe I'm the only person who feels that way. But that's... That was me, my personal experience, how I was growing up and what Destroyer meant to me. And I was really still, I wasn't done with Destroyer. I wanted more of that. And like, literally, it felt like three months later, Rock and Roll Over came out. And it just didn't have the sonic quality for me. So did, uh, do you think Destroyer scared Kiss? Because, oh, it definitely did, yeah. Because yeah. for at least until 81, they never went anywhere near that sort of sound again in, in terms of what they did to stretch themselves. And that, that kind of leads into the next question. Who do you think is the MVP of destroyer and it can and ken i'm gonna throw this one to you first you know it can be in the band it can be outside of the band but who's who's the mvp for you on the album no without a doubt to me it's bob ezrin um just for his 
uh, input, his songwriting, um, his all his, yeah, his ideas, and his his bringing the best out of Kiss, out of Peter's drumming. Um, their their musicianship has just elevated so quickly in that from you know a live or if you look back at just Trust to Kill to Destroyer, wow, you're looking. They're doing a lot of different things with the music here, you know, changing keys and and so on. So it's it's Bob Ezrin. I mean, without his production, I can't see. You know, they may. I just imagined today. I was thinking about it. What if uh, Eddie Kramer produced Destroyer? It'd be a total different thing. Uh, and maybe some the the songs like Detroit Rock City would become kind of unfinished in a way. Um, you know, classics that middle part, um, the middle part solo um, part that that I you know that wasn't wouldn't be there. That that's something Bob came up with. So it's it's Bob Ezrin. I mean, without a doubt, as the most valuable, you know person and you know for destroyer i mean it's it's kind of hard to argue that point no matter what you consider i think most people by this point have heard the uh august 75 demos that you know leaked out to the wider public a couple of years ago and obviously on the box set people got to hear paul's happy clappy god of thunder take you know when yeah. it when it when it's his beast and, mm-hmm. it, and it can't be called a beast sorry bad word to use there um you know, and his original demo of Detroit Rock City, vastly different in character, even though the elements are all there. Um, it, it really takes a, a sculptor, and, and I guess we can call Bob the sonic sculptor, to, to really mold that into something that's not ordinary, but special. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to debate, you know, Ezrin getting the most out of every single one of those guys, whether it's Peter, whether it's Ace, you know, with a, we hear the stories of him kind of singing Ace the solo for one of the songs, what was it, uh, Detroit Rock City, um, or helping Peter deal with some difficult time signatures to be working with. I mean, one of the songs I think is mentioned in 7-8th time, you know, which uh, I'm not a musician, so that doesn't mean anything to me, but it sounds difficult. Uh, you know, odd number and an even number. So, James, is it Ezrin, or do you see someone else on on, on the team who really takes it to the, the special level? Uh, well, I, I would I would definitely concur with that. I mean, you know, half my book's about Bob, and that was one of the motivations to go into it, to meet Bob and talk to him, and he gave me hours of his time, and we still email from time to time about stuff. Uh, recently, there was this Kanye West thing for some weird reason. He got pulled <laughs> into the news. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it, without a doubt, I mean, certainly I'm, I'm on record as saying it. But just to throw in a little thing, be a little different here, uh, because, again, to echo what you were saying before as well, is that, um, you know, you don't have Detroit Rock City, the middle part. You certainly don't get King of the Tight Nighttime World. He brought that in from hearing it from the Hollywood stars. You don't get Gene singing God of Thunder. You don't get the choir or the, you know, the stuff on at Great Expectations. There is no Beth. There is no Flaming Youth, which you got everybody together to do. Uh, there is no Do You Love Me, because he wrote that basically with Kim Fowley and Paul Stanley. And there's no Shout It Out Loud, which they all wrote in his apartment. So like nine-tenths of the record is Bob. But to be a little different, also to echo something that Julian said the first time we talked about it, was I think Peter Chris needs a lot of props here. First of all, he never played drums better than this, ever. Uh, and he admits it. 
uh, till his fingers literally were bleeding. He was jamming his hand in ice buckets um, to the point where it, really, it literally almost drove him insane. But also bad. Let's give it up for him for that. I mean, it was a tough spot to be in. Paul and Gene didn't want it on the record. He, he just kind of sang it uh, a cappella. Bob got this warbly, you know, uh, tape, which you can hear on YouTube, which I, you know, kind of describe in the book. And then he turns it into this beautiful aria. So, and, 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 and he had to sing the song all by himself. I mean, this is the first ballad. I mean, a real true ballad where it's, it's almost like, it's exactly like, in fact, Eleanor Rigby. There's nothing going on there except for the strings and piano. So really gutsy thing. Maybe his finest hour in Kiss. So I think Peter deserves a lot of props there. Oh, I mean, I don't think you can ignore Peter at all. I mean, I'm, I'll put him up there with Ezrin because of how far. I mean, he he bled for the band. Um, he was probably the least musically skilled um, of the four original members of the band. You know, no formal training whatsoever. Very much drums from the heart, rather than actually knowing what he may be doing. I mean, someone could tell him what he's doing in terms of a pattern or a rhythm or whatever, but he wouldn't know what you were talking about at that point. So he really and makes a, a gigantic difference. But I don't think that would have happened without Ezra. And so you, sure, you got sure. you got to give it up to them. I mean, when you look at the, like the charting of this album, you know, it hits number eleven in May. Long before um, Beth is even thought of as a B-side, you know that you know that's purely on the strength of Alive that it has its first run, you know, and then it's got its staying power because of Beth, you know, and that's where the sales really come from. I think you know is the solid week-to-week charting rather than you know August it's off the charts. So, you know, I, I I like the thought of Peter Chris because of what he does on the album. Lonnie, what are your thoughts on yeah? Uh, Tough to be the um, last guy on that topic. When Ken was talking about Ezra being the the MVP of the album, it's it's hard to argue with Bob being the MVP. You know, James talked about you know him being responsible for basically ninety percent of what's on there. But Peter's, I was if you were going to go to me second, I would have said Peter just to be different because Peter's drumming is is you said it. It's the best it ever was was on that album. Um, Peter was playing, and, and it was also when Peter was playing very well on the live tour, Peter had really hit his peak as a drummer about 75, 76, and you listen to some of those bootlegs from you know, 77, 78, you can already st- begin to hear some of the decline in Peter's drumming even before you get to the Dynasty tour. You can start to hear it on the Love Gun and Alive 2 tour. But Peter had really come into his own as a drummer prior to the Destroyer sessions. And then Bob pushed him to another level that I don't think Peter knew was possible or Gene, Paul, and Ace knew was possible for their drummer. And I, you know, you read a lot of things that they, you know, thought of Peter almost as Julian, and Julian, you mentioned as maybe the weakest link in the band musicianship wise. But what their drummer achieved on that album between not only from his drumming, but from what James said with Beth, you know, it, it's Peter Chris's crowning moment for his whole, maybe, you know, maybe outside the birth of his child, you know, the crowning moment for his whole, his whole life is, is destroyer what he did on that record. It's cover to cover Peter Chris. If, if you're going to choose one of the four as an MVP of the album, I think you absolutely have to choose Peter. Yeah, and if I may, just to, to piggyback on what Lonnie was saying, uh, I think it's unfair to say he's the least. I mean, I would say that that probably might be true, but 
if he's the only guy on a live that's not overdubbed. Almost all of those drums, if not all of them, are. And, and yeah. I absolutely, and that's one thing that I missed in the book. I think I just touched upon it, but I didn't say that he was really at his peak. It's almost like he came into this album on a roll, uh, no pun intended. And he really grasped that. And Bob did push him. But I think his work on a live is one of the best drumming, live drumming I've heard any band do. And this is not coming from a total Kiss fanatic. You guys are, but I, I you know, I. I think Peter Chris is to this day. I could still play that drum, uh, that drum solo, like you know, with with pencils or something like I did on the desk as a kid. It's just so memorable and so great. And his drumming on uh, Black Diamond and uh, his singing on on uh, on Nothing to Lose. I, I, that's those two albums in a row, which are arguably the best things Kiss ever did, is Peter Chris really shining. So if I may, he he really did uh, come into his own those two years, no doubt about it. And I gotta say, I can listen to any Alive bootleg any day of the week. And just, you know, from that tour, I mean, the whole band is on fire. They but really Pete, are. But Peter is so solid. And what are the drums and the bass in a band? The backbeat? So the backbone. You know, so, you know, that, that's right just to, to not only say that he was fantastic on Destroyer. But I'm just looking at these Magna Graphics demos. And, I mean, what would Destroyer have been without Bob Ezrin? I mean, don't you hesitate? I mean, everyone's heard that on the box set. I mean... Is that magical? Apart from it being, real, uh, you know, it ain't the smoke. Right. Um, or love. Mad Dog. There would have just been Bad Dog instead right. of him putting that great riff in the middle of uh, of Flaming Youth. Yep, absolutely. Or Love is All Right, which I've got to say is one of the worst song titles I've ever, ever heard. Love is All Right. <laughs> it's all right. right. It's, it's all right. Shut It's all right. Something to get excited about. You know, and, and, and what is this, uh, version 956 of Bad, Bad Loving? <laughs> Man of a Thousand Faces. Well, that's right. a cool, that's a really cool track, and uh, you know, don't want your romance. Burning up with fever. Rock and Rolls Royce. I mean, you know, bits and pieces of these songs come out on Destroyer. They come out. I think it's what is it? Nightfly. You know, becomes a, the riff becomes a Sweet Pain, or one mm. of them. Like, and I don't know off the top yes, of my head. That's exactly right. There's two songs, uh, Nightfly, and there's one other one that became Sweet Pain. I'm yes. a, I'm a star. You know, and howling for your love. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff from a demo perspective. But Paul Stanley He's really said it perfectly in that, you know, there's a reason why they don't release demos. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> you know, a lot of these are, you know, are good illustrations of that point, because without the, the polishing, you know, they're, they're just rocks in, in, in essence. So, you know, let's get into a few of the songs here. And I, I really want to start with Sweet Pain just because it's my least favorite. You know, it doesn't have any redeeming qualities. Um, you know, apart from perhaps it being misplaced on the album in terms of its location. Lonnie, am I being harsh? No, I think Sweet Pain is is maybe the, is probably my least favorite song on the album, but um, but I understand other people love it, though, at the same time. I'm not, you know, I, I think there's great qualities in it as well. Uh, we saw... We saw Kiss. My brother and I saw Kiss at uh, Sault Ste. Marie back in 2007. And I don't know if you guys remember or not, this one, they had a, a poll on their website. You could vote for what rarity you wanted Kiss to play at those shows. And my brother voted for Sweet Pain on that list. He goes, oh, how sweet would that be, Sweet Pain? And, and I think, and it goes back to what I was saying before, it goes back to, he saw a song off Destroyer. And just like for me, that was, that was our introduction to Kiss. So he saw a song off of Destroyer, a rare song off the Destroyer. Oh, that's his immediate, you know, immediate choice because of 
just because of where he was, what it meant to him at the time. But Sweet Pain is, it's, it's, it sounds like it belongs, and I think James made a great point. I think it sounds like it belongs on Rock and Roll Over almost because it's, it's more about what Kiss typically sings about and not what a lot of the songs on Destroyer are about. Fair point. That's good. So it's the, it's the only song of its kind on Destroyer as opposed to what's on what you hear on Dress to Kill and what you hear on Rock and Roll Over. So, but am I, I'm not going to criticize. I'm Destroyer is really close to my heart. Like, like revenge is I'm not going to really sit here and criticize anything on Destroyer. And I don't think James will either. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking for me to for criticize, maybe you need to go to Ken. <laughs> no, it's about being objective. So, you know, uh, Sweet Pain, I mean, they've pulled out Love Them and Leave Them in recent years and going back to 2006 as well as one of the rarities that they've thrown out there electrically. Would you like to hear Sweet Pain in concert? Oh, as, yes. Yeah. Would you take it? Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> over Love Them, Leave Them? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Absolutely. And by the way, there's like well, a bootleg. Over Love Gun and... <laughs> yeah, there's a few. Well, it, it, there's a bootleg of them playing it acoustically somewhere on YouTube. And I just saw it a couple of days ago, in fact. And the whole crowd starts singing it because Gene's like, I don't know the words. And I just listened to the crowd singing it, and, they, and, it, and it sounded really the, – the melody sounded better. Gene's not really singing in that song. He's kind of doing a Lou Reedy thing. And I, and I kind of brought it up to Bob because Bob had worked with Lou um, Berlin and told him to talk the lyrics. And, and Gene wanted to write a song that didn't really fight with the riff, that just sang along with the riff. So I think actually Gene doesn't do it its justice. I think the song could actually be done better if someone covered it. I really do. I think the song's not really given its full – as you said, Julian, it's not given its full Bob Ezrin – uh, or a production uh, quality. Okay, so someone who can talk it. Uh, hey, Kanye, I've uh, got a song for you. <laughs> <laughs> Only if Ezrin produces it. Yeah, yeah got to be produced right. by Bob. Ken, thoughts, well, on, thoughts on Sweet Pain? While that song is uh, doesn't fit the theme, I guess, like Lonnie has mentioned, um, I, I still enjoy I enjoyed it first time I heard it. Um, and this is the one where uh, Dick Wagner, right, is playing the lead guitar on that, one, right? So um, I I like it better than I, you know, I have the resurrected and and with the Ace solo, and maybe I'm just exactly, and I, I like the Dick Wagner one better. I like that solo maybe because I've heard it a million times and it, you know, stuck in my head that solo. But uh, I think it was still better that way, um, and it was a right the right choice for Bob Ezrin to uh, bring him in. Uh, so the song, I, I enjoy it. It's good. Uh, it, again, it doesn't fit maybe with all the other types of, you know, uh, subject that's going on on Destroyer, but it's it's a good song in my opinion. I've got a little show and tell here. I don't know how well it's going to show up, but I was looking at some documents today in one of my binders, and I've got the uh, the Union cut sheet for sweet pain the, oh, wow. the, cool. the most i mean it, it says uh you know the date and hours of employment january the 18th five to eight uh, so it's probably mixing at that stage i think or no they probably recorded around that. i think they started mixing in the big late late january early february they're still recording that it's only about five days after uh the a and r sessions right yeah. Oh, the, yeah, the, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. So the funniest thing on this is each one of these um, union sheets has uh, a, a leader's name attached to each song. Who's the leader on Sweet Pain? Paul Frelly. 
So ah. I just find that ironic as hell. And, hmm. you know, it's, it's cool shit like that that you find in the document stashes. Interesting. And, you know, that's all I've got to say about Sweet Pain. I did not like the Wagner solo. Um, I mean, hmm. pardon me, the A solo. Because I, I think, yeah. like Ken said, yeah. the, the one that's on the album is just so burned into the mind. That yeah, one, it's a tough one. That Even one, if it was better, it was too tough. Yeah, it's, it's, you know it, you already love it. Yeah, you know, you know but yeah. I, I will say what, what I did think after I finally heard Ace's solo, I was like, that's it? You know, it, it, it was nothing. It wasn't like <laughs> thunderbolts of lightning, anything spectacular. It, it sounded like Ace doing a typical, well, all right, Curly, here's my solo, diddle, 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 done. You know, right. <laughs> nothing, nothing special about it whatsoever. It's got the acisms in it, but Dick's, you know, really fits in there. That sounds really bad. Can't, t- can't take the, can't take that sentence back either. So uh, but, we'll save that for later. Yeah, Wagner solo really fits. So we can clip that off. Yeah. <laughs> nope, I don't do editing. So. <laughs> so so that's a really cool one. Um, you know, so I've got I've actually got found all the sheets to all the songs on there. So it's got mm. the all the dates. I love shit like that. So. Um, that takes me into my question for you, James. And you've done a lot of press for Shout It Out Loud in, in the life cycle of the book so far. I got to say, has anyone reached out to you that you weren't able to contact um, about the book when you were writing it uh, with information or details that you would have loved to have maybe included in the book? Because uh, you've got a lot of good press. I must say, I'm very impressed by that. Thanks. Yeah. Um uh, not really. I mean, there's a few people who come out of the woodwork, had some great pictures that posted on the uh, Facebook page we have for it. Um, you know, I, I did that interview with Rick Stewart, who was the head of the security, and he was in the building, so he told some great Bob Edwin stories. Uh, for he, he wasn't there for all of it, so that would have been nice. Ace this week for his new uh, solo album. And uh, it's funny because his manager was like, hey, can we see the book? And I'm like, where was this guy three years ago when I was trying to get a hold of him? <laughs> Um, but no, yeah, there hasn't been anybody, I was really happy with, I mean, I think I gave enough, if not too much attention to the, to the, you know, to every piece of minutia. So I, I don't really feel, um, that I, I missed out on anybody. I mean, I don't know if you guys felt that, that there was like another voice that I could have gotten. I mean, certainly I've said this a million times to every interviewer and that is I made an attempt to get all four members of KISS. If I couldn't get all four members, I didn't want to get in because of the rift. You know, I didn't want Peter to be on, quoted from... 2012 and nothing from Paul and Gene because then Paul and Gene would just say well this is a Peter apologist book or Ace ripping on the fact that he, you know. so I wanted everybody or nobody so at one point I just decided to get off the pot and just use the uh, quotes from the period so I, I, I really feel like I, I did my due diligence and and turned every stone I could upside down no that, that's really cool and you know, I, I got to go back and catch up on that Rick Stewart podcast because listening to him on some of the things, I mean, number one, he's got the greatest voice ever for, you know, a podcast. Um, so I want to catch up on that one. One other thing, and I'm, I'm sure you'll find this uh, interesting, is in that batch of documents, the orchestra. So. Wow. You get, I mean, I didn't get this to get Julian. You're now, a master. Now, I'm, you. I'm actually holding this up for a reason. Um if anyone else has this document out here, I've only got the first page of the orchestra. And what it says is that it was a 28-member orchestra. And uh-huh. it's got, uh, I think you mentioned mm-hmm. one of these guys in there, Julius Baker, in the right. book. Um, and you didn't know the contractor, Gene Orloff. 
Ah, uh, yes. Bob didn't remember either. Neither one of those guys. And Corky said there was 40 strong. So maybe they cut it back because of price, uh, because I know that they might have contacted them. But it's interesting. Everybody has different. Like I said, uh, Jay Messina argued to the end of the day uh, until I finally had to go to his apartment and show him that the end of the Rock and Roll Demons is not listed on the on the album. He swore up and down, and then you sent me that acetate. So Jay said the last time it left the record plant, it said Rock and Roll Demons on there. So there's a lot of people whose memories. I mean, certainly you're only going to get people's memories. You're not going to get to the to the nut of it. But thank you. That's great. I love this stuff. So you anyone know? anyone out there has the other page uh, because obviously I'm working on the book for the Elder, and we've yeah. got the '76 piece orchestra for that. So uh, yeah, I was going to say. I, I was going to say there wasn't 40 because two of the guys went off to play cards with Ace. <laughs> Very nice. And a couple nice. of others went out for cigars, right? They ran out of smokes. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the part I love in the book. You know, you, you're recounting, I think it's in the chapter called uh, Black Ties and Tales. Um, mm. You know, the guy, all, obviously union musicians, and they were, they were some serious players in the orchestra uh, who did this work. Um, you know, just coming in and smoking cigars, ready to, you know, just lay down their tracks. And it's a very short period of time that they're in there. So that that kind of Lonnie, let's uh, move on to you. And great expectations. Great expectations that I think. I like the demo of, and I think a lot of people are going to agree that they like the demo of great expectations better than what wound up on the album at least lyric wise at least lyric wise where you know gene's going through it and and mentioning um the members of the band's names um i always thought that was much when i first heard that demo i guess i was in high school when i first heard that demo i and i thought wow that's so much cooler than than what ended up on the album but it's that song maybe and I know Ezrin has his mark all over the album, but would Kiss have ever even considered the notion of having a, a boys choir sing with them prior to Bob Ezrin coming into the fold? Absolutely not. I mean, I think, I mean, it, it, that, that album, that, album remi- that song reminds me so much of, of Billion Dollar Babies. It, and what Bob was really doing at the time. I mean, not necessarily like there's a voice choir in Billion, Billion Dollar Babies, but just the production-wise of that song reminds me just like the big sound of Billion Dollar Babies. And it that's it's 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 so odd from from anything Kiss has ever done, but it at the same time it fits in to those songs to that structure perfectly. Um, when then and then to hear it live for the first time over what thirty years later, almost thirty years later, twenty whatever years later, it was really cool to hear him do that at the symphony. Um, just because of the fact, because of the production on it, and you know, you thought you'd never hear that song live, and you understood why it was never played live, and you know, the symphony obviously presented the perfect opportunity for it, so. Great expectations is 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 different, but it's you know it's it's Bob it's it's Bob Ezrin's song to me. I mean more than more than anything, but the, I, but I still like that demo. What do you do? You guys like that demo better than the 
I, I love the demo. I just wish it had the sonic qualities of exactly. the uh, I like finished the, product. I guess, yeah, I guess the lyrics on the demo, I guess I like better than than the lyrics. I guess you could say that's better. It's more accurate. Yeah, and I, I think it one-ups the Beatles. I mean, because the Beatles were, you know, famous for bringing in symphonies, you know, for sweetening, shall we say. And that, you know, Ezrin coming in and, well, let's throw a choir on there. I, I mean, it just takes it up to the next level. And I didn't get the uh, the Alice Cooper stuff because, obviously, I was never really into Alice Cooper before Kiss. And after Kiss, I was more into, you know, Brutal Planet and Raise Your Fist and Yell in that era of, of the Coop. So I... I I was actually thankful in your book that you spend a lot of time on Alice. Uh, that really kind of lays the groundwork for a lot of the things Bob does with Kiss. He had field tested with Alice, who was a similar sort of performer, a similar, I guess, kind of writer. Do you get that, James, that, you know, you get the symphony, you get the, you know, kind of the billion-dollar babies treatment? Yep. And I think what Lonnie said, I couldn't agree with more. In fact, I, I mentioned in the book that, the, the great triumvirate for Bob's sonic, um, you know, achievement here during this period is Billion Dollar Babies, Destroyer, The Wall. This big arena, huge, I mean, what Bob admits it. I pushed him enough, and he finally at the end said, look, I know exactly what I was trying to do. I tried to, for years, we took Alice Cooper in the studio, we built the show in the album. We created the killer character, the school's out delinquent character. We kept building these characters, and, and then they would take it on the road, and they'd do a show of it. Finally, we wanted to take the show because they become so big and give the fans that feeling. And he says towards the end of the book, when I was wrapping up my interviews, he's, he's that I always wanted to get a sonic thing so people can close their eyes and feel like they're at the show. It's so hard without the crowd there and the sweat and the, the noise of it. And even Corky Stasiak, the assistant engineer, said, you know, I think Destroyer is the closest they came to that big arena sound. And then, of course, The Wall, I think, is this great masterpiece working with Pink Floyd. So uh, absolutely that triumvirate and that buildup. And, and I was a huge Alice Cooper fan, so uh, Destroyer really spoke to me in that way. Absolutely, sonically and image-wise, that's a great combination, but Lonnie hit it on the head. I mean, Billion Dollar Babies and, and, and Destroyer are much more brothers in arms than Dressed to Kill and Destroyer, mm -hmm. or Animals and The Wall. You see, there's no lead-up. It's always Bob thrown into the deep end of the pool and changing it around. For me, that's the great triumvirate. It's... Billion Dollar Babies, Destroyer, and The Wall. Three great sonically albums that you could listen to back-to-back, -back, and it's fantastic. Ken, great expectations. Oh, great expectations. Uh, first, I'm going to say I agree about the Billion Dollar Babies and the uh, and Destroyer. I mean, th those are the closest-sounding uh, albums, uh, in my opinion. The, the guitars and, and so on uh, is just is very, very similar, very similar. Um, as for great expectations, I agree. Uh, I like the lyrics from the demo better. After hearing that, I was like, oh yeah, this, this to me makes more sense to me. Uh, it works better for me in my mind. But uh, so uh, the song, I guess technically that's you'd call that great expectations a second ballad, really, yes. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's to me, it's a ballad. Uh, to my ear, it's a ballad. I mean, Beth is real, real ballad. But uh, Great Expectations still, to me, is is a ballad. And so that's throwing two ballads on on the Kiss album back then was was pretty pretty risky there. Um, but the song, I enjoy the song. It's not my favorite on the album. Um, um, I, I I like Sweet Pain better than Great Expectations. <laughs> just just me. Um, but uh, I, you know. Uh, 
sound-wise, it's just a great, I mean, production. Great production. Can I throw in, before we leave Great Expectations, we're talking about Destroyer and 40 years ago. The album was the way you presented your product. And Bob very much says, and in the book, and he talks about this in other situations, he used the first song, the introduction, Detroit Rock City, gets you into the mood. The last song on the first side is, is that great choir that f- fades us out into Flaming Youth. It's different when you hear it. And even on cassette, Lonnie, you still end it, and then it starts the next, uh, the next side. Now it's CDs or Spotify or anything. You don't get that. So that's we have to point that out. The, the album does live on, but it's of its time, and it was perfectly set up. And I think Great Expectations is a wonderful way to, to end that first side for that album. Great song. God of Thunder. Lonnie, throw that at you. God of Thunder. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously it's, it's Gene Simmons signature truck, signature song. And we all know that obviously Paul Stanley wrote it. And you listen to that version of God of Thunder on the box set. And then listen to God of Thunder as you know it. And it's it's my it's 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 like two different songs really, and to hear what I mean, we're just stroking Bob's ego the whole time. I hope he listens to the show because it's all we're talking about. But to listen to what Bob did to that song, from what Paul brought into the studio to what it what it became on the album, and not only what it became on the album but what it became on stage as well and how that song just cre- just took the demon character from just the tongue-wagging demon on stage to I mean, it was obviously the perfect choice for Gene to drew blood in front of just to make it Gene's moment on stage. It was the perfect song for that. And I don't think any other song that they do, and, and I know, you know, they've, they've, toyed around in recent years with different songs doing that, doing the blood with no other song works the way God of Thunder does with that. It's, it's, it's signature kiss. And, you know, it's, it's become even for the casual kiss fan who may um, have a couple kiss albums, but not all of them. And may go to the show when they come, maybe go, go to the show when kiss comes around, maybe not every time kiss comes around, but majority of the time, I think the average kiss fan would walk, like on the Rock the Nation tour, walked away probably disappointed that, well, how could, why did he drew blood before Unholy, that song that I barely know off of Revenge, or don't even know off of Revenge? You know, Gene drools blood in front of God of Thunder. That's just the way we do things around here. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I could see the average Kiss fan thinking that. And, and it's become Gene's signature track. But the way that album is on, back to, the studio version of it though with Ezra's kids screaming in the background it always reminded me of like of like Godzilla almost with like the kids like like almost like like sheer screams in the background because they're they're petrified of of the god of thunder it, that's what it always reminded me of as a kid i guess going back to you know we talked about comic books and fantasy type movies and things like that i guess it all kind of ties in at the end of the day for for some of us but but i mean i don't I don't want to talk too much. I'm probably going to steal what some people are going to say about God of Thunder. So um, it's it's obviously it's Gene's signature track, but and I think a Kiss show is lost without it. 
Yeah, I, I think for for me, God of Thunder. I mean, doesn't every like comic book uh, character who's made it to the screen or to public need its own theme song? You know, Batman or Superman. It kind of has theme music that goes along with them, and Gene gets the perfect one. But I think for that, the coolest thing about that song is when you listen to Paul's version of it that he had the balls to let it go to let mm. that to let that piece of music go in a direction that he hadn't intended it is just you know a, a kind of a really proud moment because as we've learned more about Paul from his book and some of the things he said in interviews over the years that must have been a tremendous thing for him to give it away um mm-hmm. when you know he's giving away a vocal performance on the song, and I think he gets more out of it perhaps by giving it away and being able to say, "Well, you know, Gene's theme song, you know, I wrote." You know, so he brings it up every chance he gets. <laughs> he sure does. Yeah, he told us one of the few quotes I have in my book is an interview I did in 2006. He couldn't wait to tell me that, so I put it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I love about the song the most. You know, it's not one of the songs I actually care to hear. In con- I actually left a concert in the middle of it. I got paged for work one time. Walked out in the middle of God of Thunder. You know, to my shame, <laughs> but you know, didn't have a choice with the pager going off. Um, not one of my favorites, but. You know, it's Gene's song, and it, and all I see is him drooling blood and mm-hmm. green lights and all that when, when I hear it. Ken, what about you? Yeah, I mean, that's the genius of, of Bob Ezrin, to actually hear that song and say, this, this Gene should be singing this song. I mean, that's just amazing how he even, you know, would come up with that. Um, but I guess the God of Thunder, the look of the demon... That just from that standpoint made sense and then they modified lyrics after that um, but that song I always loved it live um, again I heard it first on a live too so and it's 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 sped up a bit and I liked a little bit of the faster pace um, but I had people I had some people I knew that on the studio version they were they were scared <laughs> when they heard that song they really were they thought man this is so evil, you know, hell, devils, and that sort of thing. It just kind of creeped them out. Um, but I never got creeped out by it uh, myself. But that song, it just epitomizes Gene. And, um, you know, it's going to go on forever. And like Lonnie said, that he's got to do the blood thing before <laughs> before that song. It just And then the part in when they do it in concert, they have that part where he goes, I am the Lord of the Wasteland, and they... I don't know if they, they modulate his voice or do what uh, uh, in live, and it's just it's just awesome, awesome song. James, have we gone to you on this one? I can't remember. Uh, I just have one thing I'd like to say about that that you guys didn't touch upon, and I, I uh, a couple of things. The first thing is I think, and he he just mentioned it, Ken. Um, I think the second time he sings "I Am the Lord of the Wasteland" may be the coolest vocal on any Kiss album. It's amazing. Every time that I hear that, it chills. And, and believe me, I listened to that a billion times working on the book, way more than I want. My wife had to hear it way more than she'd ever want to hear. But <laughs> that's my life. <laughs> exactly. Enough with the Kiss. Wrap this up. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, I, I, that's number one. Number two, I think it's really great, as Julian mentioned, Paul gave the song up, but, you know, he wanted it to be his theme song. When Bob said make theme songs, this was supposed to be his, I'm the God of Love, the God of Rock and Roll, which is a euphemism for sex, you know, and then, uh, you know, Aphrodite. But when he put the lyric in there, then Bob admits it, 
uh, you know, about we'll make love till we bleed, Bob started thinking there's a little bit of deviance in here that I used to see here in the Alice Cooper songs. You know, the the monster who's you know called Ethel and and that I love the dead. I think, and he said, well, Paul's not going to sing that. That's a Gene thing. So I thought that was really cool. I mean, he, again, he connected image over music, and slowing yeah. it down really made it a great thing. Uh, and and of course, God of Thunder is an actual thing. It's Thor, which is a comic book character and also a, a you know a god of Greeks, a uh, Greek god, I should say. And so, uh, Bob, w- we would chuckle about it because he would say, "No one really noticed that I put a Beethoven sonata at the beginning of Great Expectations, or that God of Thunder was already Thor." Uh, but yet, it's Gene, so they completely stole it and made Gene the God of Thunder, which I think is just fantastic. And it goes to show you the power of this album from an image standpoint. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Good connections to make. All right, let's go on to, let's start at the beginning then. Detroit Rock City, which for me is one of those two songs I've got to hear when I go to a Kiss concert, the other one being Deuce. I have got to hear Detroit Rock City. Love it to pieces. Um, again, same as what we've just said about God of Thunder with uh, Paul's original demo. It really needed some help to become magical. Uh, which I think Bob certainly did. For me, and uh, this is going to be a question that I ask you at the end, but I'll say it right now for myself, and it is my favorite song on the album, Detroit Rock City. And that excludes the introduction part, which if I could edit that out um, you know, into its own separate track so it fades out before starting in, um, you know, I'd be thrilled. And obviously the record label has had difficulties trying to edit that out as well because you don't edit Ezrin out of his songs. So Detroit Rock City, James, straight back at you for this. Uh, best song, but my favorite Kiss song, period. And uh, uh, I'll quickly say, and that middle aria part, which Ken mentioned earlier, is is one of the greatest things ever in a Kiss song. I love everything about it. It's got that Americana concept of the car in Detroit and where it came from. And I love feeling the fact that it's a you know it's a rousing song. But getting back to the point of my childhood and hearing that song and loving it immediately and just loving everything about it, listening to it before I went out with my friends on a Friday night or a Saturday night. Um, and but years later, when things were rough for me and I was you know writing, having a hard time you know getting going and writing is a tough gig and all the other stuff that goes with it or breakups I would have or just the kind of stuff you go through in life, financial problems. I could always put that song on, and it completely took me back. Completely. And this is not like one of those things where you hear a song from the 70s and you go, oh, wow, I haven't heard this in 25 years. I had been continuously listening to that song, unlike other Kiss songs, which I had kind of abandoned for a while. That song never left me. It always made me feel great at any time. And for me, it may have been the impetus of me writing this book in the first place. Detroit Rock City is my favorite Kiss song, maybe one of my favorite songs of any band ever. That's a great sentiment, actually, that you just said. Uh, and I think for me, it remains fresh. Every time I hear it, I'm no, like, it oh, not this song. Turn it up. You know, it, it, yes. it's, it's not one. Oh, Detroit Rock City. There's never a situation for me that's skip. Not possible. Is, it a, is, is there a better driving song? Maybe L.A. Woman. Think of a better, you know, or I, I'm serious. Is there a better driving song than Detroit? I mean, it's scary because the guy crashes at the end. It's like listening to a, or watching an airplane disaster movie while you're on a plane. But I love driving and listening to that song. Love it. I think it's this song is the only one on Resurrected that really bothers me. And that's the attempt to fix the little... You know, mm-hmm. um, lyrical. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The, the lyrical issue that I just wish he hadn't bothered with because it just it, it did not work. And for everything else oh, that he not. did good on Resurrected on the song, that just kind of detracts from me on that. So I, I still listen to the original version uh, simply because of that. Lonnie, Detroit Rock City. You hate it, probably, right? 
What? No. Okay. <laughs> Detroit Rock City is probably the first Kiss song I ever heard. And it's probably, I'll echo what James says, probably my favorite Kiss song. It's perfect in so many ways. And I love when Kiss opens a show to that song. I love when Kiss ends a show with that song. It's it's perfect in both positions. Um, it the you know and the guitar solo is you know it's it's maybe the most probably the most famous Kiss guitar solo, and it's you know it I I don't know I just I, I don't it's it's so great it's hard to describe almost to me because Detroit Rock City is is the epitome of what Kiss is. And if someone, like, I remember if I was, you know, a kid or something and somebody wanted to hear a, a Kiss song, like, oh, you're in the Kiss. I don't really don't know much about Kiss, like in the late 80s, early 90s. That'd be the song I'd put on for them, is Detroit Rock City. Well, you got to have to hear this song, then, because if you want to know what Kiss is about, you got to hear this. This is great. Well, here, you got to wait to this a minute 30 of this crap before the song starts. But, <laughs> you know, this, this is what Kiss is all about to me. And, um, I don't know. I, I I can't say enough good things about it because it's 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 so perfect from the way it begins and the way you can feel yourself in the car almost with the guy to the car crash and especially in the destroyer version of it when you can hear you know the motor running in the middle of the song even that that is really lost on like the double platinum version and other greatest hits versions that they put out. Um, I'm with Julian. I wish I could take that Destroyer version of it and edit out the first part of it so I can have that. Because that's my favorite version of the song is actually the Destroyer version of it where you can hear that motor running in the background and then the crash at the end. But it's it's the it's the best Kiss song there is, period. Yeah, so it's somewhat sad that the last song, I guess the originals ever recorded together as a band, mm-hmm. was the Detroit Rock City 99 version, which really... Sally just mirrors age and all the years that had gone in between the original version and 1999. So, you know, great song. King of the Nighttime World, I guess we got to do next. Oh, wait, Ken hasn't done it. Ken didn't go. Ken, did I forget? Ah, Detroit Rock City. Damn, I'm sorry. You know, I'll I'll keep it simple. I mean, we, you know, this is a Kiss classic. I mean, it has to be in every live performance. It really does. Uh, It goes without saying. Um, <clears throat> just the, the beat, the the beat of the song, the way it drives, and uh, you know, uh, picks up speed, kind of like a car. <laughs> um, and then the bass line in it, I just always loved that yes. bass line. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, you know, you never heard anything like that before. Um, so yeah, it's a four star out of four, and uh, that's all I can say. It's it's classic. Love it. Uh, if I may, just defend. The opening part for a second because it's, <laughs> it's taking a beating here and i want to say that lonnie and both ken mentioned it it gets mm. you in the car you know the yeah. bit where the where he sticks in alive and he connects alive to destroyer uh and then which connects it to the ending part with the uh, rock and roll demons and he gets in the car and he's like singing along and i think it really gets you in the car and then it comes out of it i i think 
maybe it's a little long. I love it anyway. I play it. I, I love the whole thing. But I think it does get you in that mindset that Lonnie was nailing right there. And then Ken said, it's like a car. It sort of takes up from there. So I just want to defend the opening part. I think it works sonically, or at least for me, dramatically, or as Bob likes to say, thematically. <laughs> yeah, I think also to add on to that a little bit is that's the one song that you've, the, the introduction section that you've really got to listen to with headphones on to yes. get the full benefit of it. And Corky, um, probably in, in your book and in interviews I've done with him, really goes into a lot of detail about uh, the binaural microphone technique, um, which is probably why it puts you in the car, because it's like a three-dimensional audio experience of, you know, physically, you know, getting in a car, I guess. So, you know, that that's really cool. And that, that's a great detail to, to read in your book as well. Corky's stuff is uh, some of the standout material about the technical side of the recording. So, Ken, I, I'm going to go straight back to you with the uh, with King of the Nighttime World since it follows Detroit Rock City and they can't be separated. Yeah, it can't be. Even on a, on a live, too, they're not separated, right? So I was used to that. And when we got the uh, – or when I got the album um, – it's just a, a great, a great song. I like way it, you know, the car crash happens, and then it comes whining in this other song, uh, and it's just a. You could see that song in concert, and that, why they don't play it a lot through the years. I don't. I don't understand why they don't really play it live. Um, we don't see it very often. I mean, it's only come up come up a couple of times recently, at least. Um, so that song is just a great song. I know it's not uh, fully written, but I think it was Kim Fowley. Is that the one? No, that, that's the one from the Hollywood Stars. So, well, the Hollywood Star. Yeah, that's right. That one. I'm getting mixed up with the uh, P11. But Fowley um, did write, co-write it. He did co-write it. Yeah. Did he co-write it with him at he the wrote time? The lyrics. Yeah, he did. He co-wrote oh, so it. Oh, so yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. So it was partly right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So yeah. that. I mean, it's, it's a great song. Uh, that, you're right. It was done by another that other band um, earlier, um, but uh, Hollywood Kiss, Stars is right. Yep. Kiss Kiss made that song them, their own. I mean, and it just it felt felt right. You know, felt fell right into place on the album. Um, so uh, I have no problem with that song. It's a great song. And again, I think for me, like all the other stuff that we talked about from Magna Graphics, you know, it shows what can be done to a decent demo you know, or an unrealized idea and taking something and making it special, which if when you listen to the Hollywood stars version and it's kind of a, a little bit more slow tempo, you know, and they've really got the tempo perfect on the kiss version and really polished it up. Obviously I don't think the Hollywood stars version is a, you know, a fully realized studio recording. Um, so you're not going to get the same sonic qualities, but you know, th- there's a vast difference in the magic in, in the song there. So you know, you can't separate the two. I, I would love to hear that more in concert, too. You They've know? done that a few times where Kiss has, you know, made the song better than the original song. You know, God gave rock and roll to you and, uh, you know, rock and roll hell. Uh, so, uh, you know, those are examples. And uh, so they're they're able to improve what was out there and make it their own, really make it their own. But I, I think the great thing about King of the Nighttime World is that it and Detroit Rock City are probably one of the very best one-two punches in mm-hmm. a Kiss on yeah. a Kiss album throughout their whole history. I, I can't really think of anything else that is just so perfectly, you know, setting up the whole, rest of the album could have been, you know, someone just tapping a woodblock, 
you know, after that one-two punch. You know, it, it's just absolutely incredible. James, what's your take on King of the Nighttime World? Yeah, I want to give Mark Anthony a props here. He was the co-writer along with Kim Fowley, and I know that Bob and Paul get co-writes because they brightened it up for sure. It changed the key a little bit. Uh, but um, And I like the Hollywood Stars version. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the New York Dollsy kind of thing. You can also listen yeah. to that on YouTube. Uh, but again, um, another uh, great – and it's funny. You mentioned – you asked me before about uh, people I wish I'd talked to. Well, when the, when the book was done and I was looking for a picture of the Hollywood stars to get source material, their bass player, and his name escapes me, uh, was the guy who gave me the rights to it. And um, he – he said, oh, I'd love to go on record because we're really bitter about that. And oh, I said, the book's done. You know, I, went, I never thought to reach out to those guys because I don't know how many Kiss fans really want to hear the Hollywood stars, you know, moan about this. But uh, it's part of the history of it. And um, I just think they felt like, you know, they, their, their career kind of went down the, the can. And Mark Anthony ended up getting royalties with Kim Fowler, but not them. But, um, yeah, I think it's a perfect one-two punch. Like you mentioned, aside from Deuce into Strutter at the beginning of uh, Alive, yeah. it's as good as it gets. Yeah. Lonnie. Yeah. Um, talking about talking about a one-two punch and two songs that that should be together. I mean, I, I really loved how you hear um, back in the day when they did the Short Rock City and then re- straight into King of the Nighttime World when they played it live. They sound so perfect together on Destroyer. They're just melded into one another that you know you hear King of the Nighttime World start and you're even if you don't hear Detroit Rock City before you listen to King of the Nighttime World, you kind of think, oh, yeah, you know, it comes in right after the car crash in Detroit Rock City. You know, it. You know how you listen to the radio sometimes and you hear Led Zeppelin's Heartbreaker followed immediately by Living, Loving, Made? Or you hear Queen, We Will Rock You, followed immediately by We Are the Champions? Right. To me, that's the way radio stations should play Detroit Rock City is always followed by King of the Nighttime World because they meld into each other so perfectly the way those other two songs do. Maybe even better than those other two songs do. That to me that that Kiss should have gotten the should have always gotten the treatment on those two songs on the radio, like Led Zeppelin and Queen had on mm-hmm. on those two other tracks that you always hear back to back when you listen to the radio. Right, and you can't and you can't hear Heartbreaker and not hear Living Love and Me. You can't do it. Well, it's also for the beginning of an album, and people have been asking me, is this Kisses to uh, uh, Sgt. Pepper's? Can you, you cannot listen to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and not listen to, uh, you know, with a little help from my friends. It goes right in Billy. And, and so the car crash is fantastic because on, on, um, on uh, platinum, double platinum, it just da na na na. And I don't know right. if that, that wonderful guitar thing would have worked without that crash. So again, a nice production value there. So, but I think that yeah, that all those things Lonnie was saying is so true. Those two songs are inseparable. I don't think you can play the two of them uh, without, or play one without the other. Absolutely. And for those of you who only listen on Spotify or playlists, you know, I have had to go back and fix my randomized playlists so that those two songs are together. You know, it's just it can <laughs> you cannot experience you anything randomly right. with those two songs. Everything else in the catalog, fine. You know. If we do nothing else from this podcast, people can never listen to Detroit Rock City without listening to King of the Night Sidewalk. From here on out. Yeah. <laughs> Calling it. Exactly. All right. Let's go into the first single. And Shout It Out Loud was actually performed during the tail end of the live tour. I think it came out in March as a single. Um, I, I, You know, this is one of those songs that I kind of love to hate. I like it, but I, I kind of, you know, just feel it was the wrong lead-off single for an album. Um, you know, it, I get where they're going. 
you know, I love what they do with the song. You know, the, the trade-off in vocals. I, I like how it means so much to them that it's the song that they put out for the reunion era. You know, it, it's a special song. And and I, I guess it goes back to Wicked Lester as well, so it's kind of the full circle song. But, again, it, it just doesn't have the same quality to me as Detroit Rock City or King of the Nighttime World or the next single, Flaming Youth. So it, it's kind of one of those songs that I'm on the fence about. So... James, what's your take on Shout It Out Loud? Uh, love it. Yeah, another one that takes me right back to being 13 years old and swimming in the pool and bringing my Kiss album to the party and be like, what? Everybody's complaining. What's this? Shut up. We're playing this. And that coming on and everyone going, hey, this is a great party tune. Um, I also like it because I'm a big fan of the stacks, uh, you know, the old Atlantic soul records, that call and response thing that Bob and, and Paul were going for. Um, and it's... Two, has two really great redeeming qualities for a Kiss song. Number one, it's the last time they all got together and destroyed and played together. All that backbiting of Ace disappearing and them, you know, heckling Peter for the thing. They got together one last time, wrote the song as the album was being recorded, came in and just bashed it out. Love that, and it sounds that way. And secondly, I love it that it's a combination, and it's really only been done, I think, on rock. You guys help me out because you know better than me. But rock and rock and roll all night, where and maybe a little, maybe in, uh, maybe I off of uh, music from the elder, where you know uh, Gene sings his verses and Paul sings it. I love that. They're 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 kind of like uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney there, which they rarely ever do. Gene did his, his songs, demo with it, bring it in, blah blah blah. And I, that's why I love "Shout It Out Loud." I loved learning the story of making it because it made me love the song more. Yeah, that's that's a great perspective on it, Lonnie. I love Shout It Out Loud. Um, it's, to me, like I was talking about God of Thunder earlier, it's it's one of those songs to me that, that you have to hear when you, go to a Kiss, when you go to a Kiss show. And I know a lot of people maybe are tired of it, may, may put it in the same category of of like a love gun or, or look it up or I love it loud. And, you know, and I, I really don't need to hear these certain songs when I go see the band live. But to me, it's it's as essential as Detroit Rock City or Deuce or Rock and Roll Night to me. I mean, I have you have to hear Shout It Out Loud. I mean, that's that's just one of Kiss's anthems and it's it's just one of Kiss's signature tracks that you that you have to hear. And it's and it's a short song. So if you don't like it, you know, it's over in, in a little over 3 minutes, but you you have to hear it and the 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 work of the I have to echo what James is saying that to hear the vo- the trade-off in the vocals of Gene and Paul together is is fantastic to me. And I, I love songs like that where, where they trade off vocals and you hear both both of them in there, you know, whether it be this song, whether it be I, whether it be some of the later stuff, um, like Stand or um Take Me Down Below Even Off a Monster. They I love it when you hear those two two of the most recognizable voices in rock in my opinion too that you hear them both in the same same song and cuz you know we've all seen different versions of Kiss come and go since Destroyer and that but the two voices that remain are Gene and Paul and to hear those two voices together is 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 perfect to me that you have to hear you have to have shouted out loud and it was obviously it's the follow up to of, of Rock and Roll Night you know it's just the anthem they they recognize what I get and I guess he said it was like one of the last albums they, last songs they recorded for Destroyer. I guess they could see what was happening with Rock and Roll All Night as well. So it was, it was a follow-up anthem and, you know, maybe just going off the pig t- going off the tails of that. So I, lo- I love Shattered Out Loud. 
Okay. Ken. Yeah, that's probably my second favorite song off of uh, Destroyer. Um, yeah, I love the trading off of the vocals. It's just a, a great party song. And, uh, you know, it's just great. And like Lonnie said, it's got to be in concert. I mean, it's one of those ones. I, I never get sick of it. When they start playing it at the beginning, uh, the guitars come in. You know, I just love it. It's just a mm-hmm. great song. Yeah. I, I, I never get tired of that song. It's too I, damn. It's too damn happy. It's like a Jack yeah, Russell, yeah, little yap yap dog that's always it, happy. You know, just it's like in, slap it's it like in the in, in the fact that I remember like the first time I saw him in '96, and they played that early in the set, and you know all the they didn't say it, it was before they did so much talking in between songs like they do now, like they finish the song and you just go into those guitars, that guitar intro. And my brother and I look at each other and just high five each other. They're playing Shattered Out Loud. You know, so freaking cool. So, I mean, you gotta have it. Yeah, and you know, it's a it, it's it's very melodic song. When I was playing the album to death, my daughter who grew up during my writing of this book, uh, she would I could hear her singing it in the other room. She would just be out of nowhere, just start going shout it, shout it, <laughs> and I thought it's it's hitting her right where you know. I mean, that's when you're a kid and the songs hit you a certain way. It's very melodic. I, uh, maybe that's why Julian hates it, but I love it for that. You know, I love it because I love. I'm a pop guy as much as a rock guy. I love a good song that has a great infectious melody, and that song does. It's a great pop song. Yeah. Well, we've touched on Great Expectations already and uh, Sweet Pain, so I'm going to skip over those. And Flaming Youth. We have, I don't think we've said much about that at all, apart maybe the, the Mad Dog connection. Flaming Youth is one of my favorite songs on the album. And, and it's, it's one that I got most excited that they'd finally dusted off on the cruise last year and given it its full treatment. So I was thrilled to see some of those extremely high-quality YouTube videos. Um, of Just seeing the band perform it again w- was a great thing. I, I don't think, again, that, you know, like Shout Out Loud, that it was necessarily the greatest single choice um, for the album, but for what they're trying to say, the audience that they're trying to address, it, you know, it perfectly encapsulates what the band is about. So, Ken, what are your thoughts on, on Flaming Youth? Flaming Youth, uh, and again, I just heard it a little while ago. Uh, it's it's a great song, and it's amazing that they put those <laughs> put the those parts in the middle there of Gene's song um, to build it, build on top of what was already there. Um, uh, it's a good song. Uh, it's not my favorite song. I, I originally when I first heard it, I thought that was pretty good. Um, it's good, you know, it's good for the kids kind of song. Um, <laughs> To me, I mean, when you're a teenager, I was I the kid. Say, yeah, yeah, and perfect uh, for me. Yeah, and you know, I, I enjoyed it. It kind of reminded me of that other uh, when we talked about Alice Cooper, um, Department, Department of, of Youth. Youth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it reminds me of that in a way, uh, that style and that theme. And but I, I like it. I mean, it's a good song. I'd love to hear it live. I, I would really love to hear it live with the Calliope. Yes. <laughs> I want to hear some live calliope. Exactly. Why not? Why not? They Lon- should do like they do for Pet Sounds. and play, You know, some come out and play the whole damn album. They should do a go. Destroyer This Year tour. I'd go to that. Oh, yeah, we talked about yeah, that. We've yeah, we've talked about that. I mean, we've, you know, this is the one album that they could do. set our pleads for that. Yeah, we've, we, we've made our wishes. 
Lonnie. Flaming Youth, it, it's it's just a rallying crowd song, just really like in the same tone of, of Shattered Out Loud almost. You know, that it's Kiss really getting in touch with their with their audience. They they knew who their audience was at the time. That it was that it was young guys coming to see them. That it it was a younger crowd, mostly made up of men. When you go to a Kiss show, it's still mostly guys that go to a Kiss show. And then unless somebody's dragging their wife or their girlfriend with them. But it's mostly, you know, it's a guy band and, you know, Flaming Youth will set the world on fire. It's just kind of a song that, that a young kid who, who you know, could... And they're, relate, they're relating to, you know, the kid growing up in in middle America. And that's, and that's where they were big at. You know, the kid growing up in middle America who's, you know, fighting with his mom and dad and, you know... But, you know, he has big plans for his life and kind of echoing almost what, what James does in his book, just going through. I love how you do it in your book, though, how you break down each one of those songs in a chapter, though, by the way. Oh, it's thank absolutely you. fantastic. You can just, you can get off on a tangent here real quick, but how, like, if you're, like, you're in Detroit Rock City or you're King of the Nighttime World, just going through it, like, you can, the way you describe each song, like, you don't even have to have heard the song in the past. And you can you can relate to what's happening, even if you never heard those songs. It's fan, it's absolutely fantastic. Those are my favorite parts of the whole book is how you break down those songs. Actually, thank you, thank you a lot. Because I most people said they didn't really. I, I joked with Julian when I when he first interviewed me. He was like, I hadn't read them. I skipped over them. But I hope he did. Read it's them my favorite part of the book. It's my favorite part of the book. It's my can, favorite part you to can write. Hear those songs without ever hearing them. In my opinion, right, right. It's but thank excellent. you. Well, I, you know, it was my favorite thing to write because it was real creative writing for me. Go ahead, please, Lonnie. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, Flaming, Flaming Youth was just just another rallying crowd, and you could, they were really relating to who who their audience was. And I, I'm with you; I'd love to hear it live. I've, and I've loved the cruise stuff that they've done. They did it in Oklahoma a couple weeks ago, and you know, it's it's not too late to still do a Kiss 40th anniversary Destroyer tour. So I would I'd love to hear it, even if you did it in just ten cities or something. Just yes, do it, and I know I know I'd travel to go see it. There's no doubt about it. James, do you get a good feel for? I mean, we know Kim Fowley's involved in the writing of this song about who did what on it. Do we do we have any idea, you know, well, of of where each player comes in? Yeah, well, Kim did not work on this song. He worked on "Do You Love Me" as well. Some of the lyrics on that, and then he worked on oh, uh, "King of the Night." Damn, I'm thinking of the next song we're going to talk about. Uh-huh. That's, that's quite that's quite all right. But uh, there were three, and I think I put it out. There were three different songs. There was the um, uh, we talked about before. Dun da dun ba da da is 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 Mad Dog. And then the beginning, there was some riff in there that's Aces, and Paul came up with the Flaming Youth, the title, and it was great because Bob was like, Flaming Youth, great title, let's write a song about that. So they cobbled this together. That, this is the seven fourth time that, that bore the boot, uh, boot camp, which I read about and oh, yeah, yeah. dedicate a whole chapter to. But um, I will say this to, to, again, piggyback on Lonnie, uh, and thank you very much for that because it was the most fun to write those, those things. It was, and I, and I, had, I didn't really fight for it. My editors were like, you really need this, and, and Jeff Suzz had wrote me, and he said, you know, KISS fans already know the songs. And I said, but a lot of people don't. I'm writing a history book here, and I want to give each song. I had already done it, I, and I wanted to include it in the book, so I appreciate yeah, a real it's KISS fantastic. fan. fantastic. I love thank it. Thank you. Uh, but I will say this. Uh, my parents think I'm crazy, and they hate the things I do. Is as good as it gets for a 13-year-old kid, mm-hmm. period. It just, I wanted to, I, that's what I wanted yeah. to do. Exactly. It spoke to me. Exactly what you guys are saying. They, they knew their audience, it was me. And I'll only disagree, I, although history will agree with Julian, I will disagree in the sense where Kiss was trying to piggyback rock and roll all night, which shouted out loud and flaming you. They were trying to get another youthful anthem, oh, yeah, and they totally. failed. 
they, they totally failed. I mean, Shout Out Loud actually did pretty well. I think it got into the 30s. I could be wrong or whatever. But I mean, um, it, it didn't do what Rock and Roll Night did, and it certainly didn't do what Beth did. But I, I, they knew exactly who they were talking to. And, and Shout Out Loud and, and Flaming Youth, to me, are brothers in the sense where they spoke to me totally. And those first two lines, and Paul singing it in such a happy way. Yeah, my parents have no idea what I'm about. But it doesn't matter. And yeah, I'm going to prove them wrong. I love that. Just <laughs> right. love it. And you're right, it went to USA uh, 31, and the Canadians loved it, number one. So wow. can Canadians yeah. obviously got it. Yeah. So let's go straight into what the, the one I just uh, had the brain fart on, and that's Do You Love Me and uh, the, the Kim Fowley. So that's that question straight back at you. Um, Fowley, Ezrin, Stanley, because I love that song. And that, to me, kind of like sums up Paul Stanley and his character, you know, so where he gave away god of thunder for gene to be his theme song he then wrote himself his own theme song and it, if you read his autobiography suddenly a lot of it makes a hell of a lot more sense when you you really get a, a better picture of paul mm -hmm. stanley do you love me so james straight back at you on that song yeah well bob had that chorus kept singing it over and over again on the piano do you love me do you love and he wanted to get it fleshed out, so Paul worked on most of it with him, and then Kim Fowley came in at the end, one of my favorite stories. And I should mention before we... Wagner both passed uh, since I interviewed them for the book, and they, so it's the last time any, either one of those guys will be on record about this record or the kind of uh, contributions they made. But one of my favorite stories in the book or that Kim told me was you know, when he was going up to pick up the bass player for the, um, the Runaways when he was managing them, and he was in the back seat with... Um, with uh, Joan Jett, and, her, and, and he starts writing these lyrics on a, on a napkin and uh, whatever, a pad. And uh, Joan Jett's mother's like, well, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm working on my pension. Because he knew he was going to make a lot of money just having his name on a, on a Kiss record. And I will say this, to piggyback, show you how everything kind of intertwines. When, when Hurricane Sandy hit this area a couple of years ago, Corky lives right on, yeah. right on the... Uh, in, in, and Julian and I touched upon this last time. And uh, he... Uh, he lost a lot of his records, and including the uh, the, um, the the notations in the journals that he kept for Destroyer. So again, my book is the last time that's uh, laid out there. It's sad, but you know who saved all of his stuff? Joan Jett. Joan Jett. He told me is like a neighbor and saved the rest of his stuff. Otherwise, it would have been all lost. So uh, I love how that all kind of connects together in the album. Yeah, and Corky is absolutely awesome. I mean, getting to talk to him isn't he like passionate beyond, you know. Yeah description really i i can't really do justice how passionate he is about the work that he's done and you know it comes through in your book and in, in, in the interview segments that you've done with him just you know what a pro what what a contributor as well so when we're talking about bob ezrin i mean corky deserves you know a, a hell of a lot of aplomb for this album as well and, and Corky watched our, our, our you know, your, your podcast. I had sent him a link. And I'll send Bob this link so we can see how we're all, like, uh, stroking his ego. But um, Then Cor I've only got one thing to say. <laughs> Bob, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I don't have to send it to him. But I was going to say, Corky said he got, teared up when he watched because he, he, he was – because he knows that a guy like him is working on all these albums, and until he has someone write about it and talk about Born to Run and, and Walls and Bridges and, and uh, Give Enough Rope and all, and Welcome to My Nightmare and, and Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over, you know, nobody knows. And for him, and he said he was so moved, uh, not only reading the book, but also the podcast. So he knows, I mean, it's, it's a big deal for him to get out there, and I'm so glad that everybody enjoys hearing his stories. It should be out there. Excellent. Ken, what about you? Do you love me? 
I love you, Jody. <laughs> I like the snow. I don't know. If oh, I'm that wasn't the question. <laughs> uh, do you love me? Yes. Great song. Um, uh, I especially love the middle part. Uh, the change up where you yes! know, your black your black sun your glasses make, make you look different queen and uh just just love it well put great together yeah. um uh i love hearing it live it's, it always sounds great and uh even though they say do you love me a whole lot of times in the song it's still a great song great song uh, i have nothing bad to say about it and it you know if it's a good ending uh, to the album, I guess not technically the real ending, but it, it's for song-wise, that's the, that's a good ending to the to the album. Let's go over to you, Lonnie. Yeah, "Do You Love Me" is just the perfect way to end Kiss's masterpiece from '76. It's what Julian was saying. It's it's Paul Stanley. It Paul Stanley wrote two songs about himself, I guess, essentially for the album. And even though Gene took one, even though. Bob gave one to Gene, Gene made it, and they made it, Gene didn't make it his own, they made it Gene's own. But Do You Love Me is 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 a great song, and what Julian was saying, you read Paul's book from a couple years ago, you really kind of hear, you put yourself where Paul Stanley was in 1976 with his insecurities, even though being, you know, the, the rock star that he, that he was, you can really hear um, where Paul was coming from, from his from a personal standpoint. So, but it's a fantastic song. I love the, I love the bridge. Like, like Ken was saying, with, and I love the way that they had that coda ending that the way they've been playing it since the reunion tour too, with like with the guitar riffs at the end. And James, you're the one to answer this then. Was that how the song was supposed to end on destroyer? Cause I've, you know, I've, I don't know if you guys, have, you guys have heard that, that there's rumor that, that, uh, that, the guitar ending that they've done since 96 was how the song was originally going to end. And they scrapped that and went with, you know, the bells and that, how it ends on the album. Is that true? Or is that, have you ever heard that before? Or do you think I'm making that up right now? I, I haven't, I haven't, I, no, I haven't heard it, but I, I know that Bob was Internet. very, very insistent on putting the, be- no, I'm, maybe that is true. I, I, I hadn't heard it. And Bob was very insistent on putting the bells in again. He knew it was going to be the last song and he wanted to give it a real, rousing ending there and and paul is very effusive i believe in his uh, biography autobiography where he says the bells is one of his favorite things on a kiss record towards the end of that so i don't know if they did have i haven't even heard the other version that i guess i have to listen to that i haven't i don't know about that version that you're talking about yeah they do this you, you guys julian can you guys know what i'm talking about the, the guitar outro how they do it when they play it live now oh yeah it's, it's, yeah i love that that's yeah. really cool so i wonder if that was ever where they came, did they come up with that in '96? To hey, this is how we're going to end the song now. Or if there, I've heard rumors that that's how they thought about re- ending it back in '76. I don't know. Maybe Tommy was in the wings with some bells, and they said, "Now nah, we'll come up with something else, Tommy." Bells. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Coffee mugs going. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. All, All right, right. there's there's one song I left, love and I, I I went out of order there. Um, Beth. And, you know, I love Beth. I, I smile every time I see that damn commercial now. Um, Great commercial. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, and it's the second commercial to feature Beth. If you re- few, uh, remember a few years ago, they did, like, the telephone 
acting out of the Beth phone call in a commercial, and I can't remember yeah. what it was. I mean, that's just so badass. You know, this is Peter Chris's moment. You know, the song that saved Kiss in, in so many ways. I mean, it's it's impossible to get past, you know, that, yeah, the song had a, a quite a long history at that point, but, you know, the importance of this song to the band just makes me smile every time I have to sit through all two minutes and, what, 35 seconds of it, you know. Not not totally my cup of tea, but it makes me smile. So, James, Beth. Yeah, I think it's a masterwork in getting you back to Bob again uh, without keeping driving the nail home. Uh, obviously, this is his classical training and musical training coming to the fore and writing a song. Uh, all the different chord changes in there, the key changes, completely classically uh, based, um, something anybody in KISS would not have even thought of. But also because I love... Only Women Bleed. I love I Never Cry. I, I I keep getting back to the whole Alice Cooper thing, but I love those songs. I, I, I love You and Me or No Superstar. I, I really do. I I really do. I love those songs. Uh, I love the fact that Alice is this big, bad, crazy man and then has that tender side, which was what Bob was going towards. Um, but I love those songs, and, I, and I, I love Beth because of that. I just... It's a great musical song. And as I said before, I like any kind of music that touches me or it's good music. So it doesn't necessarily have to be rock music or pop music or disco, whatever it is. If it's a good song, I'm willing to, to say it is. And that song has obviously uh, stood the test of time. Would this song have jumped out at Ezrin when he heard it? I mean, I don't know how it was presented to him um, You know, in reality. Did Peter kind of sneak it to him and said, hey, Bob, I've got a song? You know, And, and what would his his initial impression would he just have said oh yeah totally you know it's one of these songs that's so out of character that you've got to do it well he was he was desperate he told me desperate because as you know we didn't talk about it but uh the um ain't none of your business they tried to record something for peter he said we needed a peter song they kept saying there's a peter song on every record we need a peter. like the old ringo with there's a ringo song on every beetle record so uh and when 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 uh, the story goes that it, i believe in flint michigan uh gene and, and and peter and now i've later learned because i worked with lydia uh getting photographs for the book that she told me she was in that that uh that that um uh, limo ride and it's funny now three people or four people now claim to have named Beck Beth or Beth, the song Beth uh, but she claimed she came up with Beth when there was like we can't call this Beck and that Gene said well you know we need a song for you and Bob is doing great expectations for me and that's a ballad as Ken mentioned why don't you bring it to him and they sung it to him a cappella, and then he gave him the tape of the Chelsea tape of uh, Sam Penridge which we should mention who co-wrote it with Beth uh, with uh, Peter and uh Bob heard it all. He was, first of all, relieved. Oh, good, we have a song. And then he said he had to stroke everybody's ego and say, okay, bring, bring it back, even though he knew it was good. What do you guys think of this? And then they were like, oh, great, we got a Peter song. Let's move on with the rest of the record. Nobody thought it was going to be what it was. So Bob was very, very relieved. Well, Paul Stanley's probably saying, thank God I don't have to give up another song. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Ken. Beth, uh, it, was, it was not my favorite song, um, but... The first time I heard it, I think the first time I heard it wasn't even on the radio. I think it, I don't remember hearing it on the radio until I, I heard it on, uh, you know, heard it on the album first. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's an, it's a good song, a good melody, uh, again, not my favorite song on the album, but it, it's good. And, and, uh, I, I actually rather have the, you know, like the acoustic type version of of the song like they've what did they did you know, the phantom of the park thing for example uh acoustic kind of thing uh the orchestration is it's cool i like it 
Um, but I, I do like, you know, more stripped down to, you know, guitars, um, acoustically, uh, but hey, you know, it's a good song. You can't complain too much about it. I think I finally know who the guitarist is on that, and I'm not saying I'm, anything else. Oh, well, come do. on. You do? Because <laughs> we talked about that the first time. No, if, yeah. Because Wagner swears it wasn't him. Yeah, it, it will be revealed, right? His first name is John. Lenny. Oh, interesting. Yeah, what? I was going to say, well, I was going to say before Lonnie goes, I, real quick, because Ken just reminded me, um, that middle part to Beth, with that beautiful, like, the strings kind of take off, uh, even though I named all these songs, Bob said that's the closest to years ago and to Steven on Welcome to Night Nightmare, that really eerie thing. That scared the hell out of me oh, when yeah. I was a kid. Because oh, yeah. I got that when I was, like, 10, 11 years old. I couldn't be in the same room when that was playing. <laughs> and, I told, and I told Alice that. When I was interviewing him for the book, and he was just like, that is so funny. But uh, anyway, um, I was going to say that, and Bob also said that he used the same sort of progression for the string parts for Comfortably Numb. So he said, it's amazing that people never notice that. I, I put a lot of the same stuff in, in all these albums. So again, that connects all those things before, yeah. You know, Bob obviously knows what works, you know, and he, he's, yeah. he's found a certain formula in that period that was able to translate from Alice Cooper to Kiss to Pink Floyd. So, you know, that's what makes him so successful is that he knew what to use and he had a bag of tricks that he could apply, you know, across the board, really. So, you know, that's part of being brilliant. Lonnie, talking about yeah. brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> when I first heard Beth, I, I can go back to, again, being in my brother's room and listening to the cassette of Destroyer and hearing Beth and thinking, well, this doesn't really... What what is what is this all of a sudden? It sounds like something mom and dad would listen to all of a sudden on here. You know, we were you know we were listening to Shouted Out Loud, and we're listening to Flaming Youth, and you know, Detroit Rock City. And all of a sudden, we got these strings and this you know guy crying that he's not coming home to his wife or whatever. Like what, what's going on here? I, I can really I can really. You know, remember being in my brother's room and hearing that, and then, ah, Beth, fast forward, fast forward, let's get the Do You Love Me, and then we'll flip it over to back to Detroit Rock City. But, um, you know, it's, obviously, it's it's what saved, Julian, you said it, it's what saved Kiss, it's what saved Destroyer, it's what propelled Destroyer from what could have been a failure to the album that everything is compared to from that day Maybe not from that day forward, but especially after they had seen the sustained success of Destroyer, they always tried to compare any new album coming out to Destroyer. And, and it all goes back to Beth made the album successful. It was ready to tank, and it propelled it back on the charts. You guys were saying by the time they appeared on on um, the Paul Lynn special, you know, Rock and Roll Over was already out because they had, they had already hit the panic button. And they had said that we, you know, we're going, we're going back in another direction. We're going more in the vein, in the vein of, of dress to kill, you know, just straight ahead rock because this isn't working. But, but just, but Beth saved the album and put it in the stratosphere that people think of Kiss. And without it, you know, Kiss could have been one of those bands like, you know, hey, remember that band Kiss that was around only for a couple of years? They had that success with that live album. You know, whatever happened to those guys because they couldn't sustain it so you know again i said it early on peter chris you gotta tip your hat to him on on this album for his drumming and for his contribution although paul stanley wants to uh, downplay it in his book that if <laughs> you know you can do it once you can do it again but i i get it. you gotta tip your hat to peter chris for 
maybe to echo something else, maybe Peter Chris safe kiss. <laughs> and, and so what Lonnie's saying, I will say this about what Lonnie just touched upon a very key point, and that is let's let's give props to kids. Okay, they really bought into what I call the act in the book. But really what I'm saying is they did not ever, they didn't care. They were kissed. They weren't interested in being a hard rock band or this band. They're kissed. So they did what they wanted. And what guts. Can you imagine what Lonnie's saying, and this was years later, can you imagine if you grew up, if you were 13, 14, younger than I was, when you listened to the first album, the second album, the third album, you know, Alive, Black Diamond, Cold Gin, these rocking songs, Macho, Balls Out, Cock Rock. And then this comes on. Can you imagine the guts it was to put that on the record and then put it out and stand behind it? And they had to do it, and they did. They did stand behind it. And for Scott Shannon to make it a single, and nobody even knew it was Kiss and for it to catapult. But I really think props has to go to Kiss to have that kind of guts. I don't think, aside from Alice Cooper, and that's Bob again, but not a lot of people put ballads. That whole idea of the power ballad wasn't until the 80s, but these were the first power ballads. A really gutsy, gutsy thing 40 years ago. For Kiss to do right in the middle of this hard rock audience that they were creating. A really gutsy thing to do. And this is right in the middle of stadium rock era, isn't it? I mean, when right. you, think, when you right. think about, you know, Aerosmith hadn't put out any real, you know, ballads. They tried Dream On early on in their career, and that was pretty much it for 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 their time. But, you know, it, it was just heavy, hairy gorilla music for the most part. And here's a, a very polished piece of music. I, I think the saddest thing is that how they ran away from it. Um Rock and Roll Over, obviously, is a complete 180 back to the pre-kiss. And maybe they couldn't do it again because of the amount of effort that it had taken to really, you know, they probably put Peter Chris through hell. Ace probably went through hell and didn't, you know, and enjoy it. And Gene and Paul, you know, I bet Bob made them raise their game exponentially to what they'd been doing before he had them thinking about all sorts of aspects of the creation of music and song craft that they had never considered yeah. so maybe it it's just one of those things that it's a once in a career sort of album and that's what makes it so special in the catalog i mean not only is it their most successful it's also highly accessible and you know it, it's it's so varied that you get like you said you know beth who, who would have thought that's kiss well, apart from the fact that it isn't kids, it's Peter well, Chris and an orchestra, but um you know, you know, Julian, you, you, you touched on that that you know, that they didn't want to go back to it because Peter went through hell, you know, Ace went through hell trying to get this album done. You know, it could have been something they were thinking even when they were in the process of recording that, you know, when we're done with this, we're we're not doing this again because this is this is crazy what this guy is making us go through the you know, with with like the boot camps, you know, and you know, like the we're we're going back to what we know because this is this is too you know especially for maybe Ace and Peter this is too much effort this is just ridiculous this is this guy's out of his mind even because obviously because they went right back to rock and roll over with Eddie Kramer after that yeah but they're also settled at Casablanca don't forget all the things that had held up the recording of this album have now been resolved they've got a clean fresh contract. They're set for the next few years. They've got extremely good terms. They've got mm -hmm. the key man clause in that contract. So they're tied to Casablanca all the way through to 1980 when, you know, Polygram buys out Bogart. So, you know, they're settled. They, do they now need to make a, a strong artistic statement 
No, that's no question. Everything you guys are saying is exactly right. I think the great myth of Destroyer is that because, and it's true, it, there was backlash among the rock press, specifically Cream and Circus Magazine, which had always backed them. I mean, Rolling Stone was going to hate them anyway. And a lot of the fans had heard, just through the grapevine before the record even came out, that there were strings on it and a calliope and a choir. But I'll say the, the reason why Kiss did not work with Bob Ezrin again is simply because Peter and Ace had been fried. They didn't want to do exactly what Lonnie said, to work that hard again. They'd already made it. And they could pretty much put out an album with a bass drum and a kazoo, and people were going to buy it. They already had made it, and they really did lay back on the laurels, laurels, and I think to their own detriment. But we have this one piece of wonderful Americana rock history or history that is one and off. And I love the fact that it has a mystery around it, and it's a one-shot deal. But I think they all panicked. And even Paul says in his, his memoir, I, we, we didn't want people blowing whistles in our face anymore. We were done with that. Yeah, and to a certain degree, you know, the, the statistics and sales figures, after that, they're coasting downhill. You know, so yeah, so this, this is the high point. I mean, um, I'm looking at an audit of the uh, record shipments from 79, June 79, and, you know, 2.5 2. million copies of Destroy had been shipped by that point, and, you know, 1.9 million copies of Rock and Roll Over, 1.8 million so there's your trend starting. Obviously, the other albums hadn't been out as long, but you, you also see that reflected in the sound scan figures, you know, for the post-91 period. So, you know, they reached a plateau here to a certain extent. And, and we're not we're not going to go in to talk about the tour, but, I mean, the tour is also very reflective of that in that Glickman and Marks are firmly entrenched. They're doing an analysis of their, you know, their whole touring operation which up to that point had been homebrew and you know god bless the original kiss crew for the work that they did on the road you know 73 through you know europe 76 but after that it became a very professional oriented business you know with everything choreographed and timed and that's maybe where you know like lonnie said you listen to a lot of the shows after the live period and that spark's gone so I, I think we, we see a lot of the... Ma this is a magical period for the band, but one that perhaps wasn't as fully um, appreciated by them at the time because of the backlash against them. Right, and it showed the divisions in the band. It started to show those divisions that were always kind of there, that, you know, Ace and Peter on one side and Paul and Gina on the other side. Sure. Well, let's wrap up with some final thoughts on this uh, this album. And James, I'm just going to hand it over to you. As, as as the album celebrates 40 years, you know, what is your one track? You're allowed to take one song from this album with you and one MVP. Well, of course, we're going to go with Bob again. I'll go finally in Detroit Rock City. Uh, I did want to, for the purposes of history, and I did this with the Kiss My Wax guys, but I wanted to show my album from 1976. The original one that I pulled out that I described nice. in the book with the great thing and the lyrics on there. And the first, as Ken mentioned, the shouted out loud in the Kiss Army Shield done by uh, Vinny DiGiolando, who's a great guy, lives here in Jersey. And I also wanted to make this point. If anybody has this, you should get it. Fan of this record. This is the best vinyl version oh, of this. Yeah. This is the most amazing sounding. I cracked this out about two months ago just on a whim to play it for some people who are like, hey, I read your book, but I haven't heard Destroyer. Okay, sit down. And I played this. It's amazingly good. It's a, it's a 200, uh, what is it, 200 gram uh, uh, OB uh, Japanese mix. I paid like 100 bucks for this about like eight years ago when I first started thinking about doing the book. And it's just, if you have a chance to get this, it's much cheaper now on eBay. Please do. Those are the two things I wanted to at least uh, show today and to bring back memories of Destroyer. But Detroit Rock City and uh, my friend Bob Ezra. Lonnie. 
you know, I, I think we all have to say that Bob Ezra is the MVP of this album. So seeing what was presented in the fall of 75 and seeing what came out in March of 76 um, with the album. So just Bob is definitely the MVP of the album. And again, I'm going to echo um, Peter Chris and his drumming and song Beth for what he did for the album. And we were saying earlier that, you know, we were stroking Bob's ego and, you know, Bob should listen to this if he wants to have a good pick me up on a bad day. But also in, in light of some, some comments from earlier in the week, I think Kanye West should just sit down and listen to us sing Bob Ezrin's praises as well. Yeah. I think Kanye probably needs to pick up a very small chunk of Bob's discography. I'd recommend the wall. Destroyer and Billy Gabriel. Yeah, yeah. yeah First Peter Gabriel album is great. Yeah, or Berlin. Hell, I mean, come on. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, Al Yeah, and any of those. I mean, Bob's done some incredible work. Uh, you know, so Kanye obviously didn't know who he was, but as we've seen lately on TMZ, Paul McCartney can't get into certain after parties either. So, you know, there's no respect for the elders <laughs> <Right>. anymore. <laughs> hey, hey, Kanye West needs an accountant. He doesn't need to be coming about for the producers. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, he needs the, a decent accountant. The last of his problems is Bob Ezrin's opinion of him. Ken, final thoughts. Great album. If you're a Kiss fan, you should have this in your collection. If, if not, you better go buy it. Um, uh, you know, most valuable player again is, is Bob Ezrin. And uh, I guess the song I would take away would be probably Detroit Rock City. Yep, I'm, I'm with you guys on that. Detroit Rock City for me and Bob Ezrin as the MVP for what he did for the band. So uh, who, who knows what the future will hold. So everyone out there, you know, listening, you know, chime in on our Facebook page, on the FAQ board or wherever you happen to see this. You know, let us know what your favorite song is off this album, who you think the MVP is off the album. Or even, you know, if you think any of those other Magnographic demos would have been worthy of being... Uh, you know, worked on, or maybe, you know, that barrel was pretty well scraped. So, you know, happy birthday to Destroyer. I, I think it's the one album hopefully everyone's going to play repeatedly over the next month, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, pick up James's book, shout it out loud, and you'll get the full backstory to the album um, with a lot of great interviews and quotes from the people who are around making it. So, you know, I, I, we've said it before, James, when I spoke to you myself, you know, great book, absolutely fantastic work. Love the, you know, it's a different style of writing than, you know, most Kiss books are written in. And I, I found it really entertaining to see it written from a different sort of voice. So, you know, great work on that book. And, you know, hopefully... You know, we'll continue to see some great features on your uh, your Facebook page because you've been thank really you. good on that side of things as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. This has been a real pleasure. I'm, I'm so glad to be able to celebrate this with you guys. And Julian, right back at, at you. I'm looking forward to your new book coming out uh, soon. And uh, I, I watch this podcast all the time. You guys are fantastic. Really, it's a, so entertaining. I'll, I'll watch it during lunch. And it's just, you know, it's, it's great. Keep up the great work. And I hope KISS really commemorates this. I'm sure they will if they have a chance to make a buck or you know, throw something up there. But they really should commemorate this correctly because it's a huge part of their career and uh, an album that I have very few people... I thought more people would, would push back on me on this, but so many people really do love this album. They, they, they hold it close to their hearts, so Kiss should do that more often, I think. And they've heard some of those stories today. So we thank you all for listening to us. Ken, James, Lonnie, thank you for joining me. 
And we'll see you all on the next episode on the board or on Facebook. So take care, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you for spending time listening to the Kiss FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the Kiss FAQ message board and discuss the topic we broadcast today. We hope to see you again.